This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com folks back here with uh christian muntine hey jeff no i i earlier said moon as it is it moontane moontane it's it's all over the place it, i've been called everything what, what kind of name is that muntine it's romanian romanian oh wow yeah, yeah there's yeah. a whole region in romania that's called muntan muntan or something like that i kind of like moontane it's nice sounding to uh, are you familiar with other people ceausescu he was a dictator kind yeah well of guy i'm familiar for, with uh, Familiar with interesting. a little bit of the history of him. Romanian. Not, not up on my... Interesting character. Romanian um, civics. So we've met before, many years ago. Right. But I met you going door-to-door a few weeks ago. I was in your neighborhood. Yep. And we started chatting. And then after a long chat, I said, man, you'd be a good podcast. Yeah, thanks. And here we are. Yep. So I want to talk about you. At the door, we were talking about kind of legislature and like leadership. And um, we, we actually met at that Institute of the North dialogue they used to have back in... Yep. That was September 2014. 2014, I think it was in Seward. Seward. I remember because uh, Bill Walker came at the end. Yeah, yeah, he was in the group. We were a little tiny group we mm-hmm. were called in for a while. And it was right before the, it was September, so it was right before the 2014 election. And mm-hmm. I think somebody had said, it might have been Bruce Patello or one of those, they were like, this guy might be the next governor. And oh, I'm sure. I mean, everybody was wondering it because he was one of the contenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, first thing I want to talk about is kind of, you, you wrote a book. Yep. Um, I've well, I've got that one, and then I have another one that should be out this month. So, conflict and leadership: how to harness the power of conflict to better to create better leaders and build thriving teams. Yep. And that was what the, we talked about at the door a little bit, kind of leadership philosophy, uh-huh. um, pertaining to especially politics. Right. And you know, I had kind of said that I read Mandela's book, mm-hmm. "Long Walk to Freedom," and that kind of, for me at least, it it shaped a little bit about you know Mandela after apartheid, he was out of jail and, you know, they wanted to go to a civil war and a lot of the the black South Africans wanted to kill the white ones. Right. You know, you almost can't blame him, but he knew that wasn't good, you know, and he basically, him and his guys prevented that. Right. And his thing was, you have to sometimes explain to the people, Hey, this is like why they're wrong or why they're not informed. So, you know, what do you think about that as far as politics, but also in, you know, business, how, how how should a leader, you know, lead? (laughs) It's a great question. Big question. Yeah, it is a big question because I think it has a lot to do with context. How you lead uh, a business, if you own it, is different than how you would lead a business if you were hired as a leader into the business. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some similarities about leadership, but there's some differences. And, and all of that's different as well um, if you're in politics. In uh, Mandela's situation, he was actually recreating a nation state. I mean, they were rewriting yep. the rules. And so um, the dynamics that he was leading within – um, are very different than, for example, the dynamics in the, Uni- in the United States. Um, uh, so it, there, there are, uh, there's a lot of commonality in terms of what makes effective leadership, but a lot of leaders make the mistake when they try to pro- apply principles from one leadership context 
and assume that they entirely well, cut and paste into another. Yeah. Well, there's also kind of military leaders. Generals are very Absolutely. Different. So you see that in Alaska a lot where people will retire out as a general or an admiral or something like that, and then they move into a leadership position. And even though in the military, the way leaders are taught is usually very, very high quality content, they always have a command structure behind them reinforcing if they're not a good leader, they can still just make people do what they want them to do. And uh, if you're in other contexts, for example, in politics, you don't have that same command structure behind you. You have other influences and other ways of wielding power, but you can't just command a thousand people to go do something. Mm-hmm. So what kind of attributes, because we were talking before the podcast started, but it's amazing how some people, whether it's an organization or whether it's a, a business or uh, in politics, some people are just kind of magnetic. They can make things happen. Right. And you could have an organization doing something incredible, but it's it's the one person is kind of the force behind it, where if they go away, everything kind of stops. Yeah. We've all kind of seen those it's things. common, yeah. So, you know, there's always the kind of question, are leaders born, are leaders made? Sure, sure. And that's a, you know, I think about that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So you're asking if I think they're born or nature? Yeah, like, well, I mean, how, what makes kind of, these magnetic people that can accomplish things and make things happen and, you know, get people to, to follow them or, right. you know, do things. Well, I think I, 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 well, let me maybe parse your question differently. I think the, the charisma that you might be referring to when you say magnetic people is a little bit different than leadership itself. Um, because there can be very effective, there are very highly effective leaders who accomplish a great deal who are not particularly charismatic. In fact, um, I don't know if mm-hmm. you've heard of Jim Collins, uh, the book Good to Great, that was written, I don't know, maybe 10 or, or 15 years ago now. But he was a researcher originally out of uh, Stanford, and then he started his own outfit. But he did a lot of research looking at companies that outperformed. He was looking at Fortune 500 companies and, and trying to understand what produced greatness, and they were measuring that as outperforming both the market and the industry for a solid 15-year period of time. And what they found is that most of the leaders they found in their study were not particularly charismatic. They weren't actually, his opening statement was, you've probably never heard of these people. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you've maybe heard of their companies or what they've done. And, and definitely if you've owned stock in them, you're, you're paying attention to them because they're consistently high performers. And so a lot of times what, what uh, effective leadership, whether you're charismatic or not, it comes to being able to inspire a really strong sense of shared vision. Yeah, and when I said, I mean, charisma is part of that for sure, but I, yeah. I kind of brought more broadly meant people who can just make things happen. Right. Or get things done or, or change, change how things are done, I guess. Right. Well, I think, I, think that's, I think that's a mostly learned capacity, but I think some people are born with a higher um, level, just their personality or something that happens early in life gears them towards being a more driven, be less uh, prone to being, um, I don't know, deflected by oh. criticism or other people's opinions. Like they, they have a picture of where they want to go and they're willing to drive into that. And that on its own doesn't mean you'll lead, but if you don't have that, it's very hard to be someone who's a like a change agent or someone who starts things. And, you know, on the flip side, leadership, good leaders like that can also be have bad outcomes. I mean, Mussolini, oh, yeah. Hitler, Stalin, yeah. Paul Pot. These are very charismatic folks who got yeah. a whole co- country's nations to follow them and do horrible things. Absolutely. It's a whole other conversation about 
the character of a leader versus just the skills or the traits of effective leader. Cause you can be a highly effective leader and be corrupt obviously. And so, um, trying to get that whole package of someone who's effective, but then also is a good person. Honest integrity. Yeah. Has, has those basic moral traits. I mean, the two basic traits that people look for are credibility and, um, whether or not they feel respected or valued by somebody. Those are the two basic ones. So for yourself and your candidacy, I mean, that's two things that I would definitely always pay attention to is that you do what you can to maintain credibility and that people feel respected by you. Because if you lose either of those, then all of a sudden you start, you basically you're letting the water undercut you. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're letting the banks be undercut. So we talked earlier about kind of, you know, politician or general or head of a business. Um, what I, I spent the last two sessions, sessions in Juneau reporting on kind of what's going on. And so I've gotten to know a lot of the legislators and some of them I've noticed uh, former military, especially the career military. Um, it almost seems like some of them, they view the lead, the boss, I guess, or the leader is maybe in, in some cases like the governor. He's elected. He's kind of the guy in charge. But it's interesting because it's actually a different branch. You know, they, they don't see, maybe they don't see the Senate president or the speakers. They see the governor as the leader or they, or they might see their, they might view the, their constituents as kind of their, but that's a lot of people. It's not one person. So it's easier, I think. So sometimes I think for, to go to a military background, structured, regimented, chain of command to, to a, a political body or to a, to a business with, you know, many different opinions about how to build consensus. I mean, what do you think? Is that, have you observed that or is that something you think? I have observed people coming. I mean, I think there's a lot of great leaders that transition out of the military and into the, the private sector or public sector and, and do really effective work. Eisenhower um, was a- What's that? Eisenhower. Yeah, good, good oh, there's, oh, there's many examples of it. Um, but there are there is a challenge for many, um, often at the beginning, if they don't pivot or understand, um, because they are used to that structure and they're used to the context around that. Even if they're not, you know, cognitively, they're probably aware that they're not in that structure anymore. But just the habits are ingrained. And so oftentimes they still operate similarly to that. I, I have a really close friend of mine um, who uh, uh, recently retired from the military and he, on a side thing, before he retired, he was involved in organizing a group of artists. It was a, just a kind of a hobby project that he was involved with. And he was constantly frustrated because working with artists, it's like herding cats. And they, they <laughs> didn't have to do anything, and he had no ability to make them do anything. And so he didn't understand, really, when you have to fully dive into the uh, qualities of influence, when you have no, what they call, coercive power, you can't just make people do something. But when, or you don't have power at all, but all you have is influence, how do you actually effectively move people from point A to point B when you can't make them do anything? And he was, he's a good guy, um, but he was a little bit at a loss of how do you get these people organized and aiming in the same direction. And it's, it's not an uncommon challenge for a lot of leaders. Um, a, a lot of effective leadership comes down to uh, matching the right skills or approaches to the situation that you're in. People call the the philosophy behind that or the framework behind that's called situational leadership. But it's how do you match it up and not try to make everybody adapt to your style of leadership, which is a failure of many leaders. Well, I think for me, you know, I, I have the landmine. We have several kind of people involved, co-owners of it, but I kind of run it, and it's hard. It's always sometimes for me. It's like I want to. I think you have to empower people, mm-hmm. 
And I think some folks, you know, I've worked for companies, I've worked for people that they're, they're micromanage, they want to control everything, micromanage, and they're so, so afraid to empower people or give them the ability to, to, you know, make decisions and do things. And I think we all know what it's like to be micromanaged or right. have an overzealous boss. And um, it's funny because I think we all hate that, but there's still people who, you know, do that. Oh, absolutely. It's very common. It's, it's uh, most of my clients are very rapidly growing companies. Even in this economy, all of my clients right now are rapidly growing. And it's a very common dynamic. It, it comes down to trust. I mean, you meant use the word fear where they're afraid of, give, I think, empowering people. So it might have been what you said. I think some people are they're nervous of losing control of like, yeah. if I let this person do whatever they want, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. I, I lose control of Absolutely. it. I'm, what's gonna, I'm f- afraid of the result. Yeah, there's all kinds of fear about there might be a mistake. This might reflect badly on me or somebody else. There might be a, um, a risk that I can't mitigate. What, whatever it is, it's very, very common. Well, I think you have to empower people. In my view, you have to empower people and, and let them, you know, be clear kind of what are we, what's the goal here, empower them until, you know, they get to a point where they, they do mess up or something. Then you have to have, hey, you know, let's let's talk about it. But yeah, organizations cannot grow. It's a, it's a predictable bottleneck if somebody is trying to manage too tightly or too closely. Um, they'll they'll find this invisible ceiling that I they mean, can't grow past. I mean, this is applied to in the military, but I've heard, that, you know, they've done these for many years or decades studies about how many people one person can effectively manage. I think it's like seven, seven to 10. Is that kind of what? That, that typically, I mean, it depends on the level of management and what exactly you're managing. If you're managing, a, um, but one person can't manage 30 people. I mean, it's just, it's very hard direct, to directly report. They're all doing exactly the same thing or you're working with shifts. You might be able to, but the, um, typically, especially at, at the level of executive leadership or ownership, I typically start getting nervous if people are managing more than five or six people. Mm-hmm. Typically that starts to become too complex and there's too many different moving parts to, for the leader to actually do their work as well. The other thing is, you know, I've worked for many organizations, small and big, and there, there's a, the scenario, I think we've all been around, where you want you want a, something to happen, but, you know, you, you don't know if the boss or... There's somebody, maybe not even the boss, somebody's preventing it and kind of na- navigate all the personalities and all the parts of an organization to get to a point, and this is especially in politics, very relevant. Mm-hmm. How do you get to that point when all these people who have different ideas, um, but there might be a common yeah. goal, no, but there's a, all these different ideas, you know? Perfect example for you. So uh, I can't remember, maybe it was 2013, I can't remember for sure. Um, I worked with the state legislature and the Alaska Arctic Policy Commission to help them actually define their Alaska Arctic policy. And they had the commission had been working for about two years trying to come up with this policy statement. So just as a little bit of a background, uh, as you know, Alaska is what makes the United States an Arctic nation. Mm-hmm. And so we have we are why or the primary reason why. I think I read a survey or a poll years ago that I mean, like, most Americans don't even view us as that. Cause no, we're typically we're in the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> yeah. or something like that. But I mean, we're, that's why we're we're an Arctic nation. And the concern was is that there were decisions being made in D.C. that uh, weren't being done with Alaskan interests in mind. And so, oh, that was a big yeah for a while. That was a big topic of conversation. We, we were we were the uh, chair for a while of the Arctic Council. Yeah, and that was the discussion. I remember hearing a lot of why are people in D.C. making these decisions. And we were the only non-state. Na- like national state member of the council because everyone it was all countries that yeah. were in the there's eight, I think eight right I don't eight permanent exactly. yeah there's eight like Arctic nations mm-hmm. but the uh, um, 
So anyways, the, this, uh, the Alaska Arctic Policy Commission was founded out of legislative representatives from the House and the Senate. It was out of uh, all sorts of stakeholder groups. So you had you know, groups from the military, you had groups from uh, native corporations, you had uh, environmental groups, you had et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You had a lot of different groups that were involved in the conversation, industry groups and so on. And so they're not all coming from the same perspective. And they had made essentially not much progress. Um, they had no document. They hadn't really come to any agreement. And so they invited me in to help them with the process. And so we spent really... It's so about a day or part of a day. That's all the time that it really took. And I would let them through a process. And in their case, I knew that there were going to be a lot of people that were used to making speeches and talking a lot. And so I needed to make a process where we totally cut that out because it was going to derail it. And a lot of so, politicians, they want, they want to talk. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. And so we cut that out. And the, all the communication was done via sticky notes. And there's a, it was actually, it's a, it's a, there's a process that actually was derived from the military that I got this from. But, um, uh, we did it all with sticky notes, but what the, the core of it, I guess the process isn't so important for this uh, conversation, but the core of it is we drill down to this concept called interests. So people have what we would say are positions. I believe we need to do this with ANWR, or I believe we need to do this with the, the, uh, the Bering Strait Passage and how we need to manage that, or, or this is how, where we need to be with oil or with nuclear power or whatever our statements are. And we develop positions on that, and we fight over those positions. And, and that's the common kind of impasse that you get in politics. To get past that, and where I was able to get them past that, is to move the conversation away from the positions and into the underlying interests. What makes that position important to you? What are the qualities mm -hmm. about that position? And once we were able to take people from the left and the right and the wherever they were at and get them to talk about their interests, we were able to capture those interests and that is actually what formed the current Alaska Arctic Policy Commission or the, the, the Alaska's Arctic Policy document. So if you pull it out, about 90% of what you see in that document was at one time just a bunch of sticky notes all over a bunch of walls in Unalaska in a, in a, a hotel room there. So everybody was there? Yeah, everybody came down there. We were all meeting and we just did this big... In Unalaska? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. How many people were there? Probably... probably Dozen people, or maybe more than that. Oh no, there was yeah. maybe um, eighty or ninety people. Oh wow, I, that... I might be wrong about that, but there was a lot of people that were involved. Yeah. So, so this is—I mean—you could kind of talk about that and expand it to, you know, our legislature. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We have, you know, this situation with a deficit. Uh, you know, the budget's not balanced, but this isn't like a new thing. This has been going on for eight years, right? And you know, eight years ago when I first ran, I whole reason was we're spending all this money. But budget's balanced on hundred dollar oil. That's that's a fluke in the you know in the grand scheme of things. It's not going to last forever. It hasn't. You know, you see the problem. We all see the problem. Like anybody who pays attention, and most of the folks in Juneau know what's going on. They were aware of the deficit, but they kept you know the budget kept right. the deficit kept growing, and right. the price of oil went down, and now here we are, and there's almost no savings left. Burned through sixteen billion. Right. And any person who has any amount of information or who, who is informed, you know, it all informed knows you have to reduce the budget more, a little more. You can't go, it's already been reduced by about half since right. eight years ago. You have to, you have to fix the permanent fund dividend issue because the formula is not followed. It becomes a bottleneck problem every year and they can't right. figure it out. And you have to find revenues through growing the economy, whatever 
However, you do that. Yeah, it's a. The, I mean, a lot of these things have to happen. The household kind of dynamic. You need to have enough money coming in to cover your expenses, and and if you don't have that, you got to change your expenses or the money coming. But in. it's like fascinating how everybody can see it clear as day. Yep. Yeah. And it was all forecast. It's and not. It was, it's not that we just see it now. ICER was forecasting this for years before we ran into Institute it. of the North. Remember, we had the dialogue in yeah. fourteen, and then I was in the fiscal group, yeah. and we. There was like eight or nine of us, and we yep. came out and we said, here's what has to happen. I mean, it's probably the same. The same thing happened in 2000 when the price of oil crashed in the early 2000s. There was a fiscal policy caucus okay. that was formed. And I actually, somebody gave me the document. It was a binder. And it's fucking same exact stuff as right now. Same stuff. Ex- yeah. Identical. Yeah. We got to re- reduce spending. We got to figure out this dividend, you know, thing. We right. have to um, find revenues, all these. And then the price of oil kind of started to go back up. And right. they're like, oh, well, yeah, forget yeah. about it. Right. So I mean, what you know, you have sixty people and the governor. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard. I, I was down there, man. I seen it. It's everybody has different ideas and interests, right. and I, I don't know exactly why. I mean, the the uh, I think a lot of it does have to do with differing interests that are not finding commonality or interests. So here's one of the things that I found with the Alaska Arctic Policy Commission was that they actually uh, people who had wildly divergent. Um, ideas about what should be done. Like, 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 like full Anwar, no development. Absolutely. Stuff yeah, like, like that. Yeah. To- totally extreme. Um, they actually were not that far apart in most of their interests, like their interest of what they actually believed was good for the state at the very core were very similar. And that was a shock to many of them to mm-hmm. see that people that they thought were almost mortal enemies were actually wanting similar things but going about it in well, a different way or seeing a different path to having that realized that, that they weren't at their core. Not that people don't want different things, but there was a lot more. Sim- I mean, it's really true. There was more similarity than difference. Well, I tell people all the time, uh, you look at the 60 legislators or people on the assembly or people in Congress, whatever we all want. 99% of people want, they want a good economy. Right. They want jobs. They want healthcare. They want to be able to enjoy their, you know, family. Yeah. They want, they want to not worry about going broke, you know, for health, you know, losing their, all these things, right? They want to, you know, family, job, they want a healthy economy, they want stability. So, so we uh, might have a different way of getting right. there. But. I mean, as far as what I, I, I don't know, I, you know, I can't tell you absolutely here's what's going on um, down there. What I've been told off record by many legislators um, was that, and they all say very similar things, is that I won't get reelected if I do X. Well, that and is that, uh, that is what it's a repeating theme. That is definitely that, a problem. Yeah, and so whether it's because they don't feel that they have a job outside of this, or this is all they've ever wanted to do in life, or because they really feel like this is their calling and they have to fight to stay in there so they can keep doing other, whatever the reason. Well, is. Well, for most people, I mean, if you're a legislator, I mean, for most most of them, I mean, that's probably the best gig you're ever going to have. I mean, you're a very prominent, you know, you're one of sixty folks who's elected to, you know you know, be in charge of billions of dollars. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, not many people. <laughs> Everybody down there looks, <laughs> to be honest, I asked you this when you came by my house. It's like, yeah, man, everybody there looks miserable. Like it's, you walk well, through the Capitol at the beginning of the session and it just looks like. I think, yeah, you know, I've only like been there. Palpable stress in this building. Everybody I've only, seems unhappy. I've only been down there for the last two sessions. Yeah. And that's obviously, you know, a very stressful time, the yeah. dividend, the budget, the deficit, but you know, I've heard stories and I'm, I've heard friends with a lot of legislators and staffers who've been around a long time and, 
I mean, it's it's um it's hard to be excited when you're facing a major major deficit and all these problems. Right. But you know, you go back ten years. I've heard stories, man, legend like legendary. Yeah. Where they the revenue forecast comes out at the end and it gets upda- updated and they run down to the bars and say come back and everybody has another million dollars to spend before the budget right. gets closed out, or or just projects. You hear these like requests for some crazy you know project that was a line to be determined right. and no one even. F- thought about it and it just got slipped in and it was in the budget, you know? Well, one of the problems, and this is a, 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 I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I may not be accurate on all of this, but one of the things that I, so I was part of a a Commonwealth North uh, fiscal policy study group where we uh, had a lot of conversations around this topic for, this is a number of years ago, and we invited all of the candidates running for legislature to come and present. So they came in like groups of five and we eventually talked to all of the candidates who would show up. So it took months to kind of get through everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's in that group wasn't the only place, but it was one place because it was off the record. It was non-attributed, so nobody was going to get quoted in the paper. So people could hopefully speak more freely. And what we found was that um, the incumbents in particular said, I can't get reelected if we do X, Y, or Z. You know, if, if we tinker with the permanent fund at all or the permanent fund dividend particularly at all, um, there'll be a problem and we can't do this and we can't do that. But one of the other things that started to emerge out of it is that just um, because of how the budget is structured and because of the election cycles, it's very hard for anyone to actually set a budget or, or not a budget, a, a, um, a plan, a fiscal plan that exceeds two years. Well, that's what I've said many times. We, we don't generally look more than a few months or a few years ahead. Right. And, you know, in any organization, any good organization, there's a, you know, a two-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. Um, and, you know, we're, we're at a point now where the oil's not doing it like it used to. Oil's right. been great to us. Oil's built Alaska. I mean, sure. I, I love, I worked in the oil industry. It's great. I think we should support yeah. it. But, you know, and what about 40 more years? You know, we have this permanent fund, which is great. But what are we going to, you know, what are we going to do? And I think for a lot of people... They just think, you know what, it's the next election and I got to focus on that. And that's just the wrong attitude, you know, because you can't build long term stability or you can't you can't build something that's going to be around in 20 or 30 years with a, a two year outlook. No, I, I agree. It's it's not possible. And when I work with clients who are working on very short cycles, um, you just you recognize there's a structural problem in that regard. Now, our structural problem in government is by design and it's to to limit government action. I mean, that's why we have, you know, multiple parts of government and why it's mm-hmm. divided up the way it is. It's, it's designed to be inefficient. And well, and you know, I the, mean, that's by, the other that's prob- by design. The other problem is you, you have this, this thing where you can't bind a future legislature, bind a future assembly, which is right. good. You know, you don't want to do that. Um, but you know, the truth is a lot of people do stay and there's turnover every year, right. but I don't know why there's, you know, Walker tried this. He tried the plan, and I think he tried maybe to do too much too fast, and there was some of it was kind of— I think was, he was the first person in a position like that to get honest about what really needed to happen. Mm-hmm. And maybe it didn't have to be precisely the way he framed it, but the direction he was talking about were the things that we've had to move into— and I think he was the first person in elected office that had a very loud platform or you know big platform that was saying the stuff out loud. Everyone else was really quiet and they only said it privately because they were afraid that they would lose their job the way he lost his job. Yeah, I think history, I've said this, I think history will look favorably 
I mean, the dividend thing obviously was a lightning rod for all of, almost all of what's happening now. But right. you you look at his uh, consistently saying, you know, we, we have this, and he, he got kind of kind of bad deal. You know, he won, and well, it was eighty or seventy, you know, and then a few months later it was fifty, and then it was thirty. Yeah. So you know, it's it's like kind of the worst case scenario. You win, and there there. But he this, went into it, and it was lower, and they knew that it, it got was, but it got much lower after he started. I mean, yeah, they, but I mean, they they had they had the understanding that they couldn't continue spending the way it the spending had been, and so that we needed to start moving in this direction. I wanted to ask you before, but but I, I forgot um, about leadership styles. Uh-huh. So you look at two people, for example, you look at Patton right. and Omar Bradley, both generals, okay. right? Yeah. Both you're familiar, I'm sure, with. I'm not intimately familiar with them both, but I'm, I'm familiar with them. So both. so both generals, both, you know, right. successful. Yeah, World but, War II but, generals. Yeah, Patton was hard-ass, yelled, you know, there's lots of stories about, yeah. you know, he, 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 there's stories about how he treats soldiers, and it was it was very aggressive and very, kind of his inspirational style was, you know, do it, or that's right. it. But Bradley was kind of the, the, the soldier's general, you know? Right. He was he was a guy that everybody kind of liked, and he had, a, and they're both generals, you know. Right. So it's, it's like sometimes leadership styles, even if you're in the same kind of, whether it's military or business, um, can shape, and maybe that sometimes that's good to have different leaders. Oh yeah, I think you do different, need different leadership styles because not any one leader can really meet all of the needs, even if for an organization over an organization's life cycle the entrepreneurial leader who has this creative drive to build things and make things and has this kind of fire in their belly to make things happen is usually not the same person who gets excited about creating stability and order and mm-hmm. structure, but you need both. So we talked about earlier too, before the podcast, a situation where whether it's a, you know, a five person company or a 50 person company, 500 person company, um, a lot of companies or organizations have like no succession planning. Right. And we talked about Institute of the North, you know, they used to be, the dialogues, there was events, there was young emerging leader stuff. And then Nils, who was the head, he went to a different gig. And, and I don't even know what Institute of the North is doing now. Yeah, I'm not, well, I can't speak directly to the Institute of the North, but. Um, but in general, like, you know, some. Well, in general, there's something that, that, I mean, your listeners, particularly if they're baby boomers, they should pay attention to. 75% of all businesses in the United States, and this is true in Alaska as well, if you look at the statistics, are owned by baby boomers. And they are in the last study that came out in December, they're at least the last study that I saw, they're indicating that they're planning on retiring the majority of them within three to five years. And so this this massive they call it the the silver tsunami. I mean, just this massive group <laughs> of people that are moving leadership. Now that's business owners, but I think you see that same demographic reflected in positions in public leadership. You see it in uh other kinds of leadership roles throughout the community that are dominated by baby boomers. Well, I mean, this isn't so much kind of leadership, but, but in, in general, there's an industry and I've been in Juno watching. Uh, I've said this before. A lot of the lobbyists are, you know, kind of people that have been around since the eighties or a lot of them are kind of, so I look at it and I say, well, what's, you know, I mean, what's going to happen in 20 years or 10 years when three to these, five years, these folks not gonna, are, it's not going to even be that long. A lot of them it's, it's going to be a shorter cycle. So if you're like, if you're talking to, and, and we didn't really talk about this, you're, you're such a consultant or you're kind of a... Yeah, I'm, so I work with fast growth organizations and I help... We should get you on the landmine. Fast growth, right? Landmine. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. The, uh, um, yeah, I do that and I do... A part of that though is also a lot of my work is related to secession and exit planning. So I'm helping, I mean, that's a lot of my work is actually helping organizations. And I started doing it because I started noticing that many of my clients... 
we're starting to talk about, I need to have someone replace me or I need to, or I just started noticing, man, you know, you're 68 years old and you know, what's your plan? What's your, what's your, you're not going to be here for another 20 years in the business. So what are you thinking about doing? So, so whether, you know, I was on the board of a nonprofit years ago and I remember um, one day we were at a board meeting and I said, you know, I don't want to say who, but, but if the director gets a by truck or just dies or something happens, right? Yeah. This person, it was a big, it was probably 25 staff. It was a great, they did great things. It was important. Sure. But I just, one day said, just kind of out loud, what if something happens? Nobody, right. everybody's kind of like, huh, that's a good question. Yeah. And I know that person's still there, you know, but I know that thing would have just collapsed. It would have been a, a, a rush to, they would have figured it out, I'm sure, find somebody. They usually do, but it's usually very painful. So what's the best way to, I mean, you don't want to necessarily groom a person. You, I mean, I guess you could. You can. It's your, your kid, maybe, or well, it depends on the organization. If you own a business. If it's your business, you could, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it's a nonprofit and you're grooming your kid to take over. No, I meant more of, I guess, family business. Yeah. But um, you have to create the conditions to have that ready, which is always going to be hard. Yeah, so, somebody... I mean, there's three different kinds of exit or secession plans that I recommend. And just briefly, one, to describe the situation you were talking about, would be an emergency plan. And every organization should have an emergency secession plan, which is basically... What happens if you get hit by a truck? I had a client that did get hit by a truck. I mentioned that earlier to, uh, before we got on the show. Um, but it just threw everybody off because in that organization, everything was dependent on the knowledge and connections that that one leader had. And when he was hospital, fortunately, he pulled through and, and made it. But it was a long stretch of him until he got back to, to being able to work. And uh, um, so there's an emergency secession plan that should really be able to help somebody or the staff step in, kind of know what the passwords are on your computer, who you need to talk to, what are the key elements of projects, et cetera, to get people through about a three to six month interim mm -hmm. period of getting a replacement or getting somebody back in. Everybody should have that. Um, this other secession planning, like actually how do we replace somebody with a new permanent person? I think it's a little bit ridiculous if you've hired somebody who's 32 years old, they're super passionate about working in that organization. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and, buddy, we're going to replace you. At a <laughs> yeah, to start planning. Yeah, so we're going to start planning for when you hit 55. I mean, nobody knows, and it's ridiculous. To, if people think say that you should have those plans, but I think that's stupid. It, it just they don't make any sense. And that's because, and that's not because, that's why I don't think people write them because they realize I don't even know what the, who knows. But I think when you meet someone... All right, so most baby boomers are about between 55 and 75 right now. So you meet someone who is 60 years old, and he's spending his time talking about his sailboat and the trips he wants to take, and he's not talking about his vision for the business anymore. <laughs> it's a good time for him, for you to say, for it's what I say. It's like, you know, you should be putting this in place. Now, some people I'm sure, and I know people like this, they say, hey, hey it's my business. Hey, come on. I'm not talking. It's my business. I'm not talking about that. You run into that, I'm sure. I guess maybe the folks talking to you are probably receptive to. Well, it's mixed. I mean, I don't go and just like meet people on the street. And say, no, hey. no, but but I mean, if you're if you know somebody and you say hey, you're, hey, dad, you're 65. You know, you're going to retire. You're like, well, there's a there's an element of uh, exit and secession planning that I think many owners relate to, similar as if you were to talk to your parents about a long-term care planning or about preparing their will. Yeah, that's tough. Because that's tough. There's, there's, that is clearly deal to, you know, mortality and morbidity, and, and people are uncomfortable with those conversations. When you are talking to an owner about their business or someone who's had a very deep role 
in, a, in an organization, even if they aren't the owner, but they've been real formative in creating it. Their identity is tied to it, and there's a psychological almost death that happens or a perceived death that happens. And I found that I, people that would actually come to me, they would hire me. They'd already write the check. I'd already be ready to go. And then I couldn't get them to work on the plan. And I found out oftentimes the reason was is because they viewed this as death. Like they couldn't see a themselves. That's afterwards. what I was kind of getting at, you know, was uh, uh, this means I'm, you know, out of the thing. And yeah, I'm, it's it's so much more fun to go to a new house and meet people and say I'm the president of, I own, or to secretly hide it and kind of use euphemism so nobody really knows that mm-hmm. you're in a business than to say, well, I used to be somebody and now I polish my Porsche or something like that. And it's, that's not as much fun for people to say. And so they, they're uncomfortable with it. Um, and so what I found is I had to help them get a vision for the future. Like what's your vision for your future for the next 30 years of your life. And once they could have a really clear vision around it, then it was easy to get them to, to do their plan. Uh That's a vision is very important for leadership. And so when you're working with leaders in Juno anywhere, I think if people don't have a clear picture for a future, and one that you can hang something on, I think it makes it harder. And in the case of, you know, Juno or Congress or any anyone, it's going to be a, a, sh- a sh- there's going to be individual visions, but it's got to be a shared, you know, Somehow in a, in a caucus, it it's got to be a vision. shared vision. Yeah. yeah, and I think the ability to help influence that and understand. So, I mean, I would recommend, I mean, I I, I have no aspirations to go down there, but, the um, I, you know, if someone's, you are wanting to go down there. And, and if you end up in that position, I mean, I would definitely encourage you to be um, a really deep listener to everybody and try to understand beneath the positions and the stances and the talking points, what really drives this person. And can you help weave a common vision out of that? And I think if you can begin to do that and begin to articulate that in a way where when you speak it, people recognize their vision in that, I think it becomes easier to create commonality when people don't have to work together. Uh And that's, that's the approach that, um, that you do find community leaders use when they don't have power, but they have influence when they can't force people to work with them. They can't hire and fire these people. It's, you're working with people's volitional. Yeah, someone told me recently about, uh, we were talking about kind of power. Mm-hmm. Like, what, who was telling, telling me that? It was, what is power? We were ta- discussing that. And they said their view or definition of power is being able to make someone do something they normally wouldn't do. Yeah, that's that's a good working and That's definition. definitely, you know, I think there's other ways of defining it, but that's a very, very that kind of almost encap, you know, because if, if somebody's going to do something anyways, it doesn't matter. Right. So it's trying to, you know, make, get somebody to do something. And I guess there's force, but you know, we don't, that's a bad way to do it. Well, I mean, that's what, that's what the, some element of force or power is about the ability. And it's not wrong. There's a place for that. You know, the place for, if you need, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're flying an airplane and you need your crew on the airplane to do what they're supposed to Mm -hmm. do so that you know, people are safe. You need that ability to do that or get people off the crew who aren't going to perform the way they need to perform. And, and every job site needs that. If you have, if you're running a construction crew and you have people that ignore safety standards, you need to be able to get rid of them. Yeah. So, so you need that, that ability, but it's always externally driven at that point. And the highest form of leadership is where you can speak to people's internal motivators, like what really drives that person. And you can link what drives that person 
to the vision, and then they're internally motivated to move in the direction of the vision, whether or not you're driving them. And that's, it's harder. And that's it like the uh, longer, but Ameri- American hustle. You seen that? I haven't. Oh man. It's with um, Christian Bale and you watch it. He's okay. a kind of a con man basically. Right. And he's just really good at telling people exactly what they need to hear, want to hear All right. to be able yeah. to, it's a great, it's actually based on a true kind of true story and right. the ab scam, you know, the Arab scam in the seventies right. and all those stuff in the East coast and I'll the casino. Take a look at that. It's a good movie, but it's, yeah. that's, that's kind of a, well, I mean, really a con artist's, they are doing that. They're speaking to yeah. oftentimes someone's, you know, their sense of scarcity or their sense of desire to be somebody or something like that. And they're saying, I can help give you that. Yep. And now they're fraudulent. They're not able to, to deliver and they don't intend to deliver and they're only intending to take. But when somebody does that from, as I said earlier, if they have that real integrity and that respect or that, that regard for the other person and they do see, well, here's what they really want. Now, how do I get you there? Then that's very powerful. I do think going back to an earlier point you made, I think very effective leaders that are working in a place where people have to voluntarily work together, like the legislature or or large community politics, um, you need that ability to tap into what do people really want and figure out how to frame that in a vision that they, many of them or the majority of them recognize their their desires in. But the other part of it is, is not everybody, I mean, state politics has a complexity to it. And I think your average Alaskan, because I think your average legislature, legislator reflects your average Alaskan. I mean, they're coming from that pool of people. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd agree with that all. I mean, yeah, but I mean, like for example, you have a lot of lawyers in the legislature. You do. You have, you you do. have a lot of folks who couldn't, you know... The average Alaskan, I, I've always for a long time said this, they can't go to, I mean, they have a job, they have a family. They have a job. My point is that um, I think that if you have the time to sit down and explain some of the situations to many Alaskans, they understand it. Uh, okay, yeah. The problem is, is you, you don't have the time to understand all the complexities of this approach to the tax structure for oil royalties or this approach to doing that, you know, all of these things, because they're highly complex. And then when you put policies in place, there's all these unexpected consequences, et cetera, that it just takes a lot of dedicated time to become comfortable with and figure those things out. And so I think that the kind of leadership that is on one hand able to understand what does my constituency really want and how do I, or what do my colleagues in the legislature really want and how do I articulate a vision that seems to capture much of that as well as how do I help educate people or move people towards well, the understanding of what what's necessary to actually make that happen. And that's what I've tried to do with the landmine. That's what I've generally my approach to this thing is a lot of stuff happens in Juneau and there's just generally been, I've been here 16 years, you know, and I've run for office 2012 the first time. So I've been, I guess, paying attention for about eight or nine years really close. And right. there's just a lack of kind of communication and, and explaining. And the media, there's media is dwindling and, you know, right. only, only one person can do so many stories. Right. And, and my, my thing is you have to, you know, I think generally people, uh, even if they disagree with you, if they know what you're doing and they understand it and you explain it to them, you know, they're, they're, they're for the most part, understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I, but if, I, they, if they don't know what you're doing and they feel like it's all corrupt and right. they feel like everything's a fucking disaster and they're all hiding in Juno and you don't see or know, then it's easy to say, oh, the whole thing's rigged and, yep. you know. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it goes back to that, that concept of, of credibility or trust. And respect. I mean, if people don't really trust what's going on, they don't mm-hmm. trust the process. But, you know, the, the book, The Conflict and Leadership, that comes in part out of some of my experiences as a mediator. It's my copy? Yeah, you can have that. Love that. 
um, of my experiences as a mediator. But I found as a mediator that um, if you listened well and parties were heard well, like their actual interests, why this was important to them was heard and they were able to kind of get all of their air out and talk and, and not have to defend or explain or, or uh, justify why they felt what they felt, but they were just able to get it out. Oh. And they knew that you understood them. Even if they didn't get what they wanted out of the agreement or settlement or whatever the mediation was about, they often walked away feeling uh, satisfied, feeling like it was a fair process that they were listened to. They didn't get what they want, but they, at least they understand. And, and it, was, it was really amazing to me. Um, I, I worked with this medical malpractice case where uh, a woman who had a, a uh, there was a botched surgery on her infant. And so she was suing for that. She didn't feel like she should have to pay for the surgery. And so I'm, I'm meeting with her and, and with the representatives for the, uh, the surgeon's office. And it was interesting, um, just the process. Uh, I mean, I don't dictate where, what the agreements are at all when I'm mediating and functioning as a neutral. But in this situation, um, just her being heard really well, the, one of the representatives from the surgeon's office uh, listened to the story about the infant and actually broke down in tears listening to the story. And that on its own moved the, the lady who was suing to actually drop the case. Just, just having somebody care that her child and her family had gone through this really horrendous experience and she had dropped, she, she um, stopped pursuing the case or her side of the case. And interestingly, she actually agreed to pay part of the medical bill. Whoa. I mean, it was, and I'm not involved in making this happen. That isn't even like maybe the direction I would have suggested to go mm-hmm. to, but it was where the lady wanted to go. And it, and, and it, it came out of, well, I think we all in the end, being heard. like you said before, we all in the end, we all, we all want to, and should be, you know, listen to. Right. That's important. I think a lot of times in politics, it's easy to, I'm guilty of this even, you know, talk to somebody and you get frustrated that they're, they're just saying everything they're saying is wrong. Right. And it's, 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 it's hard. It's, it's easy to say, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But, right. you know, you keep listening and you keep, you, know, you figure out, there's a way to kind of tell them, hey, this, but, you know, you understand kind of their feeling and why they're feeling a certain way. Right. And I think that's one of the challenges even in the, the so just going back to the Alaska Arctic Policy Commission, a lot of the way I designed the process, it was constructed to make listening easy and speech making hard. And so people had a way to communicate Everybody had a way to communicate. Nobody could get kind of uh, drowned out mm-hmm. by the loudest voice in the room because everybody's writing on these little sticky notes. Um, and what I, I think the structure that that is often used for meetings in the, the legislative process is one where people talk at each other, and there isn't or over each other or over yeah. each other. But there isn't really a process of <clears throat> that makes it easy for people to really listen to understand to, I mean, I, I think by nature, most people struggle to do that. Well, there's some people that are really good at it. Well, um, in the legislature, you're dealing with a lot of type. I mean, probably all, almost all type A's. Some of it's a personality so. type too. Yeah. There's a, a tendency. Um, you know, the things that make you, I mean, to be totally candid, uh, the things that make, that get you into the legislature, being a successful candidate are not the same things that make you effective as a legislator. Oh, I've said this a million times. The at, no, I've said this exactly, almost exactly what you said. I've said the, the, the attributes or the, the uh, skills to get elected are very different than the skills and attributes to be elected. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the folks have both. 
and they can overlap. Right. But oftentimes they, they're really strong on the one. And, and there's a lot of folks who are horrible at the getting elected part, right. but they're great legislators. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and it's, and, and, but because to get in the door, most of the time you have to get elected and run a campaign. And so that pathway in doesn't always bring in, I think the people who are naturally the best at yeah. the kind of deliberative conversations that would be, I think more helpful right now um, for our state and for the nation. I mean, there's a lot more position taking and, 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 and also I've noticed, and, and to be fair for people who haven't spent time around legislators, and I think I'd be curious if you've seen this as well, but there seems to be a very much a public persona and statements and way of talking. And then many people, there's like this other person when they feel safe, Oh, absolutely. And they feel like they can talk and be free. There's absolutely. Like this whole other, there's like the human being. <laughs> I mean, shit, I've had people tell me, I mean, legislators before a crucial vote or before a, you know, speech, like they tell me one thing and then they would go and do the total opposite. Right. And then afterwards I ask them, well, you know, well, you know, kind of my hands are tied or, you know, this is the way, the way it is. And I can't, I can't control it. And I said, wouldn't it be, I mean, better if you it's hard for me to do something that I don't believe in, you know, or right. that, but it's just, I, yeah, I've seen it, man. I've seen it down there. Not everybody, but there's just, it just depends on the issue and I guess on what's going on, but there's all these forces always at play, you know, there's, right. there's, there's one way pulling you this way and pulling you that way. And it is complicated. And for, for, you know, to the, to the limited degree that I understand it or have any insight into it, it, it uh, um, I do think it's very complicated, the work of doing it well. Each of the issues, you know, how do you how do you set up good policy around education as well as ANWR, as well as any other kind of and you got you know you got as well as resource to, you know or, or taxation or there's so many different topics. And you got somebody from Anchorage, and then you got somebody from Fairbanks, and then you got somebody from Golovin or from right. from Barrow or from you know Ketchikan, and they're all there. Wildly diverse interests, diverse backgrounds, all of these different things. It's it's not easy to do. I don't think it's an easy job, and um, uh, so. Yeah, I, I always I, I find that whole dynamic fascinating. Maybe that could be your next one. You could you could go and work with a group of legislators, like the policy forum well, thing. Well, I mean, I like doing that kind of work because it it proves that that group of people in a very short amount of time, um, because this was a two year multi year commission. By the point that I met with them, they had been working for about two years, and um, but was really within a day's worth of work, we were able to develop most of those uh, policy statements, and obviously it, it was using some of that. Mm-hmm. two years work but a lot of that two years work from the meetings i sat in on was really just speech making at each other and and listening to reports yeah. and, and trying to stay awake really well the book is uh, conflict and leadership how to harness the power of conflict to better create better leaders and build thriving teams so folks can get that on the amazon i bet or on the yeah, amazon.com internet yeah, cool well, i'm gonna take this one yeah give it a read yeah uh, great conversation. Really yeah, enjoyed yeah, this. Enjoyed yeah, it's kind of a follow-up from the first one, but yeah. a little more detailed. So. Yeah. Um, Christian Muntean. Muntean. Oh, my God. Muntean. Muntean. <laughs> Damn. I almost did it. Well, beautiful day here. Yeah. I mean, the sun's still out, so we've got a few more, I guess maybe another month, hopefully, uh, summer. And then we got the primary next week. Then we do. Coming up here. And uh, what's today? Wednesday? Less than a week, so we'll be watching that. All right, Christian, thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.